Colossians, just a brief um, outline. I, I don't do alliteration rarely, but I did on this. And I, I, I'm got, I've gotten doing more acrostics. You know, like this month I said I want to be glad. Month of October, I want to be gospel laden. I want to be a good listener. I want to be attuned to eternity, and I want to be. D means uh, just deluged with or digest the Word of God. Just every day I said, let me be, Lord, make me glad. So these are four C's. Now, alliteration is four C's. The book of Colossians, I'm going to be reading from the NIV today because I've studied Colossians a few times in the NIV. I switched to the ESV about a year and four months ago. So, but in, the, in Colossians, I just said the way I th- think about Colossians is the, the first part of Colossians, you celebrate the uniqueness of Christ the glory of Christ, the wonder of Christ. And then you, the, the response to that celebration is chapter 1, verse 28, through chapter 2, verse 5. And then uh, chapter 2, um, verse 6 through 23 is be very careful. And then you celebrate again. There's two celebrations here. We'll cover that second celebration. And then the, the counter strategy, which will be covered in the weeks to come. But I said that, you know, this the thing about be careful, the, the, the whole the issue in the book, verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. I know you've studied this, but there were some false teachers, I think, outside the church. Some people say from within, well, I think it's outside, outside the church who were uh, talking about their visions and then their rules and regulations. It was, uh, it was outside of the apostolic message. Uh, don't let anyone uh, who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. They talked about angelic worship. Such person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head. Christ, from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. And I just, I just was, I was reading this, I thought, you know, uh, thanks be to God for his word. You know, and that that we have the final word from God, the ultimate word from God. And there is um, a wonderful book that I'm going to cover with some of our younger guys next. We're going to have a morning of study called uh, Ten Practical Ten Practical Things Christians Need to Know," something like that, by a guy named Kerry, who's a professor of philosophy at a school in Philadelphia area. And it's a wonderful book. And but one of his things is he says, you know, he said really. Your intuitions are your intuitions. They're your intuitions. You don't. He says, just stay in the Word. And see, these people were taking intuitions. Maybe they, something they had dreamed, or, and they were they were elevating that above Scripture. So he said, here's the good news: your intuitions are your intuitions. And your intuitions come as you study Scripture, your worldview, your experiences. I just you get off target. Uh, there's a study we did years ago, a lot of Baptists did experiencing God. Did you guys do that study? Okay. Uh, by Henry Blackerby. And it's seven points, and uh, God is at work around you. God invites you to be involved in this work. God speaks to you through the, through, through the Bible. The Holy Spirit speaks to you through the Bible. What are the other things? Remember? Prayer, experiences, and the church. Okay, now, if I were teaching that today, 
I would say God speaks to us by His Holy Spirit through the Bible, through prayer as we pray the Bible, through experiences as we put every experience through the grid of the Bible, and through the church as the church lives and teaches the Bible. I just think it's staying in Scripture. And so I, I think that's the, 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 the flag here, the careful flag is, and I want to get into this, but Sinclair Ferguson, who's one of the great theologians of our day, pastor of First Baptist Columbia, just left there and went back to Scotland. Which, you know, their, their theme song was Almost Heaven, Scotland, you know, West Virginia, anyway. Um, um, he, he, said, he said this, and this we have to be real careful. And this is not the, he said, if you stood up in a prayer meeting 30 years ago in a church, and some of us can remember 30 years ago, uh, if you stood up in a prayer meeting 30 years ago in a church and says, God told me, he said they didn't have cell phones, but they would slip out and call the ambulance and take them to the psychiatric ward. And he said, today that is standard fare in every Bible study everywhere in America. And he says, just be real careful. Just be, stay in the Word. See, the problem with these people is they came in and their, their experiences trump the Word. Their visions trump the Word. Um, so he says, he, Paul is waving the, the be very careful flag. Let me just do this. Verse, and this is how you twist Scripture uh, historically. He says, you died with Christ, verse 20, to the basic principles of this world. Why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Quote, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with, with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. And Paul says, you know, these people go around saying, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. It's a new asceticism that's above Scripture. Now, what's very interesting here, who knows what the 18th Amendment was? Prohibition. What was the 21st Amendment? The appeal of the prohibition. So it's always easy for me to remember that because, you know, in our, our country you can have tobacco at age 18 and freed up to drink at age 21 or whatever. But what's interesting, the prohibition movement, the temperance movement, the people would go around, there was a group that went around with a big banner they put over the stage that says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, Colossians 2. Which is the exact opposite of what Paul is saying. I mean, they're arguing for abstinence when Paul is arguing against that type of false asceticism. Um, so you just just stay in the Scripture. Just stay in the Word. Okay, so we, we come to this, um, the, the new celebration. So celebration, the response, be careful. Now celebration is focusing our attention again. Since then, verse 1, chapter 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then he starts the counter strategy the counterculture put to death, therefore. And he, and he walks throughout the rest of the book. But this is a celebration. This is the refocusing. He says, you've been raised with Christ. Go back to chapter 2, verse 12. Have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. You're, you're new people in Christ. It's because of that. He says, set your minds or set your hearts, your hearts, on the things above. And then he says in verse 2, set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. The word for set here is a continual and habitual action. 
Set your hearts, set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. And my question is, how do we do that? The text answers it. When you ask this question in Bible study, the text will answer it almost every time. How do we set our hearts and our minds on the things above? Mention three things. Number one, Christ is seated, he says, at the right hand of God. Because of that, we say his high priestly work, his mediatorial work is finished, it's done, it's complete. So I, I glory in the finished work of Christ. Secondly, our gracious King Jesus reigns, he reigns, he is king, he's sovereign. So if I'm going to set my mind on things above, I remember that Christ is my king. Not only is my, he's my priest, but he's my king. And as our risen Savior, he intercedes for us. This is in Romans, this banner statement in Romans chapter 8. Paul says this. Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies who is he that condemns? Answer, Christ who died. More than that was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That's unspeakable comfort. I think of the statement, I think it's Luke 19, where Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, Satan is asked to, 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 you know, to sift you a sweet to get in your life, but I pray for you, Peter. I just, I just say, Jesus, you pray for us. You pray for your church. You pray for your people. How Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Secondly, your life is hidden with Christ in God. I think that's a double protection statement. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. The passage we always run to is in John 10. Jesus says, no one can snatch you from the Father's hand. My Father is greater than all. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. In God. Augustus Toplady, this incredible hymn, Rock of Ages cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin, the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Rock of Ages. Or the old song, um, A wonderful Savior of Jesus to me, he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, why, why can we put our hearts, affections, and our minds, thoughts on, 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 on eternity, on the glory of the kingdom? Because Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and my life is hidden with Christ in God. And in verse 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, and you will appear with him in glory, which I think is the main statement in this passage. Christ is your life. There's a little deal at the bottom of the page, and I, I never get tired of sharing this with people, but there's a guy named Richard Swinson who wrote some books. He's professor of medicine at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he wrote some books called Margin, The Overload Syndrome. Um, really good, good, easy-to-read, think-through books. Everybody here should read them. But I, I developed a little formula from, from those books, and it's... Um, E minus L equals M. 
It's the energy I have minus the load I have to expel equals margin. And what, what Swenson says is that uh, the vast majority of Americans live in the red. We live in the red physically. We don't get enough sleep. We don't exercise. We don't eat right. You know, you've heard all that. We live in the red emotionally. We have broken relationships. We have this. We have that. We live in the red financially. We, we, we spend more than we make. And I'm, I'm amazed at the number of people I talk to who make a ton of money, but they just continue to spend more than they make. And I'm not a great economic strategic thinker, but that doesn't work. You know, he says, but we're, we're always operating in the red. And he says, when you operate in the red, you develop ulcers, anxiety, heart attack, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, stress. And I, I think one reason we, 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 we don't set our hearts and our minds on the things above, quite frankly, is because we just don't take time to worship, to think, to pray, to be with God's people, to honor God on the Lord's day, so forth and so on and so forth and so on. So, so there's a quote, next quote. Is this, this is from a little interview from a guy named Joel Beakey who's written some books on the Puritans. You know, I love the Puritans, the Puritan century, 1560 to 1660. The question is, if the Puritans could spend a day with us, what do you think they would identify as hindrances to meditation in our lives or thinking God's thoughts or thinking through the Word of God? He says this, the Puritans would mention a host of hindrances, such as our love affair with the entertainment media and our physically oriented world, our worshiping of Hollywood stars and sports heroes, our worldly pride, our lack of love for doctrinal truth and the Sabbath. But here's one I want to pick it up. I had this put in caps. But most of all, they would be concerned about our massive blind spot towards heaven. We think little of it. We are people preoccupied with this world. We surround ourselves with earthly amusements and earthly business. Even ministers tend to be focused on programs and measurable results instead of eternity. Yet, Christ, our life, is in heaven. All our solid hopes are there too, and God commands us to set our mind upon it. Um. Set your mind to the things above. See, Paul, Paul is getting... And what's so wonderful about this book is Paul is celebrating before he goes into the counterinsurgency, the counterculture. Celebrate the reality of Christ. Celebrate the hope of heaven. This is a little quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, this, 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 this is probably one of the finest things I've ever read in my life. It's, it's the sermon entitled The Weight of Glory, preached in 1941 at Oxford. And of course in 1941 at Oxford, Britain was in the middle of um, World War II and they were all by themselves. Francis Fallon, we're not in yet. It's a bleak time. It's a bleak time. So Lewis gets up and he says, just, just, he says and what came through them, he says, good books and good music. We're longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. 
for they are not the thing itself. He says, they, he says they point to the deep reality, to heaven. He says they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we've never visited, spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. The hope of heaven. In the aftermath of the sniper event, there's a lady that wrote this in the uh, New York Times. Her name's Paget. She says, the fact is, staving off our own death is one of our favorite national pastimes. Uh, I think of, you saw this, Philip of Macedon was Alexander the Great's father, and he had a servant that would wake him every day, says, good morning, great king, one day you will die. Maybe there's a better way to wake somebody up, but, you know, it's, it's interesting. She says, we save off our, uh, is one of our, saving off death is one of our na favorite national pastimes, whether it's exercise or checking our cholesterol or having a mammogram. We're always hedging against mortality. Find out what the profile is and identify the ways in which you do not fit in or fit it. But a sniper taking a single clean shot, not into a crowd, but through the sight, reminds us horribly of death itself. Despite our best intentions, it is still, for the most part, random. And it is absolutely coming. That's what Paul says here. He says, when Christ who is your life appears, and you also will appear with him in glory. Be, be, fix your thoughts there. Who won the Super Bowl last year? Everybody, come on. Yeah. It's, it's hard for even guys to remember. We forget. <laughs> The Ravens, okay? The Baltimore Ravens. You know, they're the ones with the big, the, you know, the raven, raven on the, the helmet, okay? The, when, I was in, when I was in ninth grade, I had to memorize. Really, I really like the fact that our kids have to memorize certain things. I wish they were memorizing Bible verses. Because I, I remember poems I memorized in high school. It's kind of bedded there. So I had to memorize parts of The Raven by whom? And where was Edgar Allan Poe from? Well, he, he lived there for a while. Baltimore. Baltimore. Thus, they're called the Baltimore what? Ravens. If, if, I, if I was teaching American Lit, we would study Edgar Allan Poe half the year. Because Edgar Allan Poe understood evil. Remember the telltale heart? I mean, just, but, but, but he understood evil. He did. He got the dark side. He didn't get the good side. He, he, got, he got the dark side. Um, but, but let me just read. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary over a quaint and curious volume, volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping on my chamber door. Tis some visitor, I muttered, and 
tapping at my chamber door. Only this and nothing more. Odd distinctly, I remember, it was the bleak December. Any separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I sought to borrow from my books of sorrow, sorrow for the lost. What's her name? Lenore. Lenore. I remember that because there was a girl in my class. Named, her middle name was Martha Lenore. Her, she, she hated the name. What did I call her? Lenore. I called her. The rest of her high school experience, I called her Lenore, and she always giggled. It was kind of fun. So anyway, he's sorrow for the lost Lenore. You may have met a Lenore. You have met a Lenore? That's kind of, cause I kind of a, it's not, not, do you guys, have you guys, young guys ever met a Lenore? Okay. You met Madison's though. I've never met a Madison until recently. That's kind of, names, sorry, forget it. <laughs> For a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore. Nameless here forevermore. But it was just, he says, the raven kept saying what? Nevermore. Nevermore. Then he ends this point by saying this. It's really good stuff. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas or Athena just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out of that shadow that floats, that lies floating on the floor, shall be lifted nevermore it's powerful and, and Poe is saying never, there's no hope when my lovely Lenore died she's nevermore she's gone there, 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 there is absolutely no hope and, and you, read, you read these on, I love honest pagans you read honest pagans and your heart breaks for them there's no hope and that's why this, this, this incredible statement here, to celebrate the glory of Christ and the hope of heaven and then live counter in, as counterinsurgents or as a counterculture. Now, that's one of my concerns is you know, we, we teach our, our kids, you know, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You know? And we start listing them off and boom, 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 boom. And that's important. But man, let's, let's get them saturated in the gospel of grace and the hope of heaven and the glory of Christ. Christ who's seated at the right hand of God. He, he reigns. He intercedes for you. There's double protection in him. There in his life. And Lewis says, you know, we, we need a, what do you say? We, we need a spell. We need a spell. And you not have the need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness, what's the spell? Christ. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. Ambrose said this. He was, uh, he died right before 400. Ambrose is one of the forefathers, forefathers of the, of the church along with Augustine and Jerome and Teddy Roosevelt, I don't know. <laughs> Gregory, Gregory. I've never read Gregory much. But this is what Ambrose says. He says, let, let there be this difference between the servants of Christ and the worshipers of idols. That the latter weep for their friends whom they suppose have perished forever. But from us, Christ followers, for whom death is the end, not of our nature, but of this life only. Since our nature itself is restored 
to a better state, let the advent of death wipe away all tears. He's not saying that we shouldn't grieve, but he says, really, like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We don't say nevermore. We say restoration. We say new bodies. It's glorious. As when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Think about that. And then there's a quote by, by Tim Keller I have here. I think you have. I don't think I have it. Let me get it. Uh, Keller, I've got it here. Keller, I just, this is a book, I've just, I just finished it. Walk with God Through Pain and Suffering. It is a great book. I would just plead with you to read it. It's just so good. This is what Keller says. And he could be writing about First or Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If one does not find consolation in these Christian doctrines, then I think total disbelief in God is better preparation for tragedy than the thinned out, secularized belief in God that is so common in our Western world. Now think about that. That's a profound st statement, I think. You ever, somebody's going through a tragedy or a hard time and people say, our thoughts are with you. I don't even know what that means, you know. Or, or really, the, there's an interesting, uh, there's an article in uh, some, the New Republic, or, um, in, in, the, in the aftermath of the Newtown tragedy. Newtown, Connecticut, right? Is it Connecticut? Right. This writer was saying that, that people talk about the fact that our, our culture is secular, but they were absolutely blown away that every newscast, every person without fail said, we need to be praying for these families. And, and they were kind of saying, well, maybe we need to rethink the secularization of our culture. And I would say, you know, that, that's just shorthand for I don't know what to say, so I'm saying goodbye for most people. You know, what, my, you're in my thoughts. So, so Keller says, really, if, if when you are going to encounter pain and suffering and daily living, it's, you're really better to be an atheist who just gets mad or and or indifferent than somebody who has a, a, a belief in a God that isn't a God who is really the triune God of the Bible, who really is sovereign, who really controls, who really is glorious. And he says this. Many people today believe in God and they go to church, but if you ask them whether they are certain of their salvation and acceptance with God, or whether the idea of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross is real and profoundly moving to them, or whether they're convinced of the bodily resurrection of Jesus and believers, you are likely to get a negative answer or just a stare. Western culture's eminent frame, it's a phrase used from a guy named Charles Taylor who's a philosopher, which means you live only for this world. Western culture's eminent frame weakens intellectual belief in God and makes heart certainty even more difficult to come by. But this partial Christianity or theism is far more difficult to hold in the face of horrendous suffering than is atheism. Now, atheist says, well, that just happens. A quasi-theist says, well, God, God, God is, is, I guess he's God, but boy, you know. As Taylor has shown us, natural evil offends those who believe a God exists for us and confounds those who don't believe we are sinners needing salvation by sheer grace. He talks about a God 
who is for us and a God who reigns from heaven and a God who one day will make everything right. So, so on the basis of that, you blast through the rest of the book. Okay, I'm finished. 30 minutes. Okay. Question, you want to do questions now or just, uh, you want to just turn to each other for 30 seconds and say, I don't have a question, but that's, it's, it's a really nice day. There's lots of yogurt left. But come up with a question maybe in small groups, and we'll just have two or three questions as time allows. Okay, just turn for 30 seconds, and then we'll do that. Just turn around and say, hi, my name is. Pretty easy, yeah. Okay, issues, questions, comments, whatever. Anybody? Yes, Miss Roop. Um, if, if you don't mind looking back at chapter two, this is a question come up. Um, verse eight and mm-hmm. verse twenty. In the NIV, it makes reference to the basic principles of this world. The ESV, I think, puts it elemental forces or yeah. Huh. If you could just maybe address that. It, it, so, when the Bible says elemental forces or spirits, it's talking about the forces of darkness. And so NIV would translate hollow philosophy, I think, without putting my glasses on, hollow and deceptive philosophy. So the ESV, which is a better translation, uh, elemental spirits, forces of darkness. Gene, that's, that's, that is a, a, a very wide open, uh, long, disruptive... <laughs> No, no, but I, I, th- I think what I'm saying is we need to be very, very careful. Um, I'll, use, I'll use an easy example. So you're, you're single, and you're thinking about getting married. And the per- I've been asked this 5,000 times, as have you, is there a one for me? The Bible doesn't answer that. The Bible says get married in the Lord, get married in the opposite sex, and when you get married, that's the one. But I think we, we, you don't, so in other words, we don't have to know God's will for our life to go forward. We need to be in the Bible. That's one statement. I I just think we have to be very, very careful with saying God told me speech when it may be just your intuition. It's fine to have intuitions, make them biblically formed. See, that's what I'm saying. I, I, it's just so much easier and safer to stay in the Word of God and make application from Scripture. That, that's my that's my flag. And uh, so, so that's why I say, if I was doing experience in God, I would say God speaks to us through His Word and speaks to us as we pray Scripture and speaks to us as we put our experiences through through the filter of scripture and, and speaks to us through the church as the church discourses scripture and speaks. I mean, go to Colossians 3, speak to one of the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing, make, spirit, make music in your heart unto the Lord. Well, hey, well, you, it doesn't mean you, you, speak, you, you sing Italian arias to each other. I mean, you may do that. I don't know. But, but it, it, you, 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 sing, you sing the apostolic message. That's what he's saying here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you sing. See? <coughs> Amen. It's a God direct me and lead me and teach me and yeah. They're nudges. And see, I, that that I think that's clearly biblical. But it's when people, I, 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 this is not the, the folks of our study, but I know it, I'm, I'm sorry. I just wanted to throw that out because it, it does concern me. 
I have a very dear man in this community who I love, and he loves Jesus, and he's more close to the throne than I will ever be. He is a wonderful man of another denomination. Well, he's Episcopalian. He was Episcopalian. He's delightful. And and we would used to get together and pray years ago, and and I, I just, I love this guy. And he would always, as we started to get together, there's a small group of us, he would say things like, well, God told me. God told me. So one day we were just by ourselves having lunch, and I said, can I ask you a question? I said, well, I said, does God have a British accent? <laughs> I've always, you know, does he? And he said, no. What do you mean? I said, well, you keep saying God told me. And I said, well, he said, no, that's not what I mean. I said, what does it mean? He said, God impresses upon me as I study the Word. I said, then please say that. I said, for, for a lot of you, other, that, that will throw a lot of people off. Be very careful. That's, that's my flag I'm waving, okay? All right, other issues. Yes, um, in Colossians 1, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Why does he reconcile things to himself in heaven? I don't know. That's a good question. I've never thought of that. I guess it means everything will be brought into the sovereign rule of Christ because of the cross. Like on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah came down, what were they talking about? His coming passion. Because they were saying the Old Testament promises are fulfilled on the cross. So even, even there is an element of all creation. All crea- of course, all creation comes under the lordship of Christ because of the cross. It's a good question. Other things? Do you have a um, commentator that you would recommend? There are. I put one commentary down. This is good, but if it, I, I go, I go. Um, I don't do sets. I try to do individual authors. Like one one set will have. This will be a great commentary. Like I'm going to use Second Corinthians. There's the, the New American Commentary. The right, the Garland is phenomenal. Um, but for Colossians. Um, this commentary by F.F. Bruce is very good. The one, the, the, Bruce, it's the one I've got down there, one of Simpson and Bruce is very good. But there is a book called, by D.A. Carson, called Commentaries and, and, and some New Testament Commentaries, where he, he talks about the best commentaries for each book of the Bible. So, good question. Anything else? Yes, ma'am. So the question is, what does ch- uh, chapter 2, verse 12, buried with him in baptism, refer to? It refers to baptism as a symbolic act. And as a Baptist, let me just argue that what does buried mean? You go under. You go under. It's like the, 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 the Greek word baptizo means to what? To dip or to plunge. So, man, I'm a Baptist. Um, let me just tell you a story about that real quick. Sarah and I were in Carthage this summer, and I spoke to a group of uh, pastors and so this this is just crazy to me so th- this of course tunisia is muslim and you go there there's a, a a a site that's overgrown with weeds and um you have th- these stones these steps and it's just a field overgrown and up above it is a a, a beautiful ornate modern mosque and, and this this is the site of the church at Carthage where Augustine worshipped. 
and we're in 327 or so, the church put together the first group of letters, and they said, this is the New Testament. <laughs> you know, it makes Valley Forge in Gettysburg look like JV. I mean, it's nothing. And here we are standing there in this, this stone rubble. And I thought, well, A, I know that, that the Muslims aren't keen on the Christian history, but but people understand economics. I would mow it and put a gate around it and charge people five bucks to go in and walk around, and I'd have paid 50. But we stood there, but we went into this this huge worship chamber. And he said, the, 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 the guy that was with us, the little Christian Arab guy who was trying to give us a tour, but he, he was nice. We weren't doing a very good job. He, he didn't he didn't know his history real well, but he was real sweet. And But this huge chamber, and then I was with another guy, an older guy from Tennessee. I say older guy. He's about, he's, he's 67. That's, <laughs> that's seven years older than me. I guess I have to refine. A fairly young guy. But this fairly young guy. And so we, we go we go behind behind the worship or at the front of the worship center is this big stone, probably ten feet in diameter, Sarah, 12, 10, 12 feet. And I stood in it and it came up to here at the top. And the God the God said, Well, you know, th through the centuries there's been a lot of dirt and silt. It was much deeper at one time. And the guy I was with, I thought he was gonna have an out-of-the-body experience. He was so happy. He said, i got to take a picture of this and send it to my Presbyterian friends. <laughs> he said, this proves, unarguably, that you were plunged as a believer. I mean, to me, baptism is, 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 is big, but it's not that big. I didn't do backflips. But just being there, I was going, this is... So it, it refers to the act of baptism that is symbolic of being buried with Christ and raised in newness of life. That's why. Okay. Anything else? I've probably taken too much time. Thank you for your kindness. Uh, thank you also on Tuesday. All times on Tuesday, it's like Christmas. I'll go into the workroom and there's some yogurt there. So when, when you guys don't eat your yogurt, uh, the rest of us can eat it. Uh, so thank you for doing that, Rose. God's peace. <laughs>